Welcome to CME on ReachMD. This activity, titled Sorting Through the Complexities of Managing Metastatic Colorectal Cancer, Strategies for Individualizing Treatment, is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome, LLC, and CGEN. Prior to beginning the activity, please be sure to review the faculty and commercial support disclosure statements, as well as the learning objectives. We're thrilled to have you with us today, and we have a great speaker for our topic. Today, our topic now is keeping up with the rapid emergence of strategies for advanced renal cell carcinoma, and we have a wonderful speaker, Mary Dunn, who's a nurse practitioner from the Division of Oncology and the Department of Urology and Medicine at UNC School of Medicine in Chapel Hill, North Carolina. And here are Mary's disclosures, and these are the learning objectives for this session. You'll see that she's easily going to address this to address the address patient and disease-related characteristics and their relevance to optimal treatment selection, develop evidence-based treatment strategies for the appropriate management of advanced RCC, and to recommend recommended strategies to effectively manage the adverse effect associated with novel agents for advanced RCC. All right, I'll now remind you that we're going to talk about considerations for non-metastatic RCC at initial diagnosis, and here's our speaker, Mary Dunn. Welcome. I'm so thrilled to be here. I love talking about kidney cancer. We could have an entire conference about treatment options for management of kidney cancer, but we have to condense everything into my into my one presentation. So we're not going to touch on every single option that there is to treat advanced kidney cancer, but just kind of hit some of the most recent highlights and hope hopefully reinforce some things that you know and teach you a few new things along the way. So kidney cancer or renal cell carcinoma is one of the most common cancers affecting adults in the United States this year alone. Roughly 82,000 people will be diagnosed and close to 15,000 people will die from kidney cancer. The vast majority of kidney cancers, over 70%, are clear cell. There are other subtypes, but the majority of the treatment options that we're going to discuss today are going to kind of revolve around the treatment of clear cell renal cell carcinoma with a little caveat there that we need more clinical trials that are include patients who have non-clear cells so we can get a better understanding of how to effectively treat them as well. An another little thing, so I work in neurology and medical oncology, so I take care of patients who have had surgery for their kidney cancers and also patients who are getting systemic treatment. So what I see on the urology side is that we are seeing a lot more early stage tumors because as I'm sure all of you know, if you go to an urgent care or an emergency department with belly pain or any kind of, kind of abdominal symptoms, you're probably going to get some sort of imaging test. So we're seeing a, a higher incidence of kind of small renal masses being detected earlier than normal. So this is kind of outside the scope of this talk, but for non-metastatic or localized kidney cancer, surgery remains the kind of the mainstay of treatment with addition of adjuvant therapy in selected circumstances, which I'll touch on. But also for small renal masses, a lot of times we can do surveillance depending on what the circumstances are for that particular patient. So this is a chart that kind of highlights some of the published adjuvant trials for tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So adjuvant therapy is systemic treatment that's given after definitive therapy. So this would be for folks who have had partial or radical nephrectomies for their kidney cancer. So there's three randomized controlled clinical trials here, and the majority was in clear cell, the clear cell population. And only one of these trials, so S-TRAC, showed disease-free survival. So this was sunitinib versus placebo. We, we typically don't 
prescribe a lot of adjuvant sunitinib generally because of the the toxicity profile and because there is now another option, which we will talk about. So this is Keynote 564. So this was a trial of adjuvant pembrolizumab, which is an anti-PD-1 antibody immunotherapy versus placebo. So this was given for patients after surgery who were at an increased risk for recurrence. So those patients who were stage two with a Furman grade four or sarcomatoid features, or patients who were stage three or higher, or patients who had regional lymph nodes or M1 with no evidence of active disease. So the outcome measure here was disease-free survival. And as you can see, the disease-free survival for patients who received pembrolizumab was 78% versus 67% patients who were getting placebo. The way that the pembrolizumab is given is every 21 days. So on a three-week cycle for up to one year, depending on things like tolerability. The overall survival data for this is still pending. So we don't have those long-term, long-term numbers yet. So who should, who should we consider adjuvant treatment for for those who are at a high risk of recurrence? Patients with clear cell with T3 or higher on their pathology. Um, patients who have M1 disease are, who are without evidence of active, active disease within one year of treatment. And this is really a, a very much an example of shared decision-making because urology is involved in this in the post-operative setting. And then we get our medical oncology colleagues involved. And of course, the patients, because it involves really assessing their comorbidities. Are they even candidates to get immunotherapies? So many of you are prescribing and or managing folks who are getting different types of immunotherapies. And you know, it's, it's certainly not a one size fits all, including all the social situations where having to come to you know, come to the clinic every three weeks to get infusions and, and all the other kind of barriers to cure. So it's a big decision-making process, especially in the context of not having that, that long-term overall survival data yet. Sometimes patients are fine going on a surveillance protocol, which is, would be standard of care if they choose not to get adjuvant treatment. We monitor high-risk folks usually every three months for the first year with imaging to make sure that they don't recur. So our action item here is to speak with eligible patients, as we talked about, about the potential risks and benefits of adjuvant PEMBRO. So there's this kind of theoretical question of, can this potentially eradicate any micrometastatic disease that our imaging studies just aren't sophisticated enough to pick up following surgery? Okay, so now we're going to talk about planning optimal first-line treatment for patients with advanced cancer. And my goodness how this space has exploded. So I tell people I'm a dinosaur. So I've been in this role since 2010. And when I first started, I think I had sunitinib and pisopinib and a handful of other things. And then single agent Nevo came along. And, and then you know, in the, in the following years, this space has just exploded. So I, I say that it's a, a bit of a blessing and a curse, and, and you'll see why in, in subsequent slides. So before we even consider which regimen to put people on, we have to be mindful of what risk category they fall in. So this risk category stratification system was developed to classify patients into groups with corresponding prognoses. So you see all the criteria that we, that we use, so performance status, time of diagnosis, 
to recurrence and different lab values. So hemoglobin, calcium, platelets, and neutrophils. So what you do not see on the list is LDH. That does not come into play. So what we know is that the, the higher the, um, the risk category, the, the, the higher the score, the poorer risk and, the, and decreased survival for these folks, as you can see here. So we kind of break people into three different categories depending on their risk factors. So favorable risk, intermediate risk, and poor risk. 70, 75% of patients with whom we're selecting first-line therapy for um, have at least one risk factor, which kind of automatically slides them into that intermediate risk category. But there are 20, 25% of folks who present at a favorable risk. So with favorable risk, we know that the overall survival is about 43 months. Intermediate risk is roughly 22 months and high risk is much lower at eight months. This is the current therapeutic landscape for any cancer, metastatic kidney cancer in the first line setting. So we risk stratify people and then based, based on their risk stratification, we then take all the other factors that we have to consider that you all know, comorbidities, social determinants, patient preference, other medications that you're taking for their comorbidities, et cetera, and then decide what is the, what is the best step for them. So you can see here, the vast majority or everything actually in the first line, in the first line setting that we would recommend is, is some form of combination. So as you all know, when the, the more, the more cancer directed medications you throw at people, the higher risk they are for having toxicities and side effects. So a lot of really good nursing and provider education has to come into play here. And you'll, you'll hear me harp on that a little bit. But now, you know, in, in, the, in this, this world of newer agents and combination agents, so targeted plus immunotherapy, sequencing, and even kind of picking that first, that first line treatment can be a little tricky. We do, if patients are eligible and interested, always encourage people to consider clinical trials when applicable and available. Is there a role for surgery in patients who have advanced kidney cancer? And the answer is maybe slash rarely. This depends on the patient and it depends on the surgeon. So there's been a couple of trials done. So this highlights the phase three Carmina study looking at cytoreductive or also what we call a debulking radical nephrectomy. So um, the arms here were radical nephrectomy, then sunitinib versus sunitinib alone. The, this trial had very poor accrual. All the patients were relatively sick. So they were, all were intermediate or poor risk. They had very, very large tumors. So this trial ended up actually closing early um, because of the poor accrual. So generally what we do is consider offering a debulking nephrectomy with the emphasis that for patients with metastatic disease, this is not curative intent, this is palliative. So unfortunately, the vast majority of people with metastatic renal cell cancer will eventually die from their cancers. So the, if patients are, are very symptomatic, if they have big, large, bulky tumors that are causing them pain, hematuria, those types of things, or if we think that a, a radical nephrectomy could potentially keep them off of systemic treatment for a little while. So for example, doing a nephrectomy, and if they have 
like just a couple of pulmonary nodules that are likely metastatic disease, but we could keep them off systemic treatment for a period of time by just taking out the primary tumor, then that might make sense. But again, all the factors play in if, if folks are even candidates for surgery based on their individual characteristics. And this is not something that's that's terribly common, but can be considered for certain patients. Of the first line immunotherapy combination trial regimens in renal cells. So again, the space has exploded. So we've got Pembroaxi, Cabonevo, Linvo, Limbatinib, and Pembrolizumab. Ipinevo for folks who have intermediate risk for poor risk disease. If you look a few rows down and just kind of look at the objective response rates there. So that's the percentage of people who have had a partial or complete response. You see those numbers there, right? So 60 versus 40% for Axipembro. Um, I, I will point out that most of these trials, at least the first four trials, were, were versus submitted. So these are not head-to-head trials comparing combinations against other combinations. So they're all versus Sunitinib, which is, in, which is an, an old medication that we typically don't use anymore. So we have to keep that in the back of our mind. But re- regardless, these objective response rates for the majority of these trials are, are actually quite promising. So we there's a lot of things that go into consideration when deciding which one of these do we start people on. And we'll talk about that here in, in the next couple of slides. And this is this is a slide showing the first line IO combination trials in metastatic renal cell carcinoma. It kind of goes through what the what the dosaging schedule is. So that can sometimes play a role. So Pembro can either be given every three weeks versus every six. Um, Axitinib is medication that's dosed to BID. So you have to think about if you have any concerns with patients who may not remember to take a pill twice a day, that can be a struggle for some. For Nebo Cabo, the Nivolabat can be every two weeks, but typically we give it every four and the Cabo is taken daily. And you can kind of see the rest of those there just for the interest of time. But we we give folks, we'd like to keep people on the same regimen until there's progression of disease. And that's a little bit subjective as to what does that mean exactly, progression of disease. So um, we typically, when we start people on a new regimen, uh, like to get scans within two to three months of starting that new regimen. And kidney cancer is weird in that sometimes we see what's called mixed response. So Sometimes tumors will stay the same. Sometimes there'll be new tumors. Sometimes the tumors will be smaller. Sometimes the tumors will be bigger. Sometimes we'll see a combination of all of those things. And what that tells us about the biology of the disease is that every single one of those cancer cells is different, which can make it frustrating for us to be able to to pick the best treatment and can make make it difficult for patients to understand why is is this one tumor growing when this other one is shrinking. So generally we consider progression disease. Of course, if anyone's having any kind of concerning clinical symptoms, regardless of where they are in their treatment, we need to get updated imaging studies to ensure that there's there's nothing going on. But typically, if we see new tumors in different organs, um, tumors that have been there, let's say a lung mass that has has grown in, in a significant manner and things like that. So sometimes we kick the can down the road a little bit if there's just a slight progression of disease so we can kind of get the most bang for our buck out of their current regimen if they're tolerating it well. All right, so this kind of goes through how do we select? Well, there's there's a lot of factors. So using the risk stratification, we go with 
and ICI, so immunotherapy plus a tyrosine kinase inhibitor. There is some evidence that show, like I kind of mentioned, for people who have a very low volume metastatic disease. So let's say just a couple of lung nodules that we could put them on a surveillance protocol. And then for folks with intermediate risk or poor risk, treating with immunotherapy, tyrosine kinase, or ICI plus ICI, which is the ipinevo. And of course, patient preference has a lot to do with this disease characteristics. So if they're symptomatic, you know, I, I get a lot of questions about, well, if if these are all have a very similar mechanism of action, how do you know which one's going to work the best for me? I absolutely do not. None of us do. I was talking to someone the other day and, and they have a, a very, they're mechanic. So they use their hands a lot. So we think about, I was thinking about for him, you know, what would be the best choice and and maybe trying to pick a combination with one of the tyrosine kinase inhibitors that has a less likelihood of causing things like hand-foot syndrome so that it doesn't interfere with his ability to work. So all of those little nuances is why taking a really good social history, past medical history, and reviewing comorbidities and medications is hugely important in helping us be able to decide. And as many of you know, these checkpoint inhibitors and immune system drugs and stimulate the immune system, overstimulate the immune system. So we have to take into consideration folks who have underlying immune-mediated type disorders. What do we do with those folks to ensure that we're not going to cause a flare of, let's say, their, their Crohn's disease or their rheumatoid arthritis or things like that? And typically what we do is we consult with a specialist who is managing that particular comorbidity to ensure that they also feel like it's safe for us to prescribe what we're prescribing. So there's a lot of collaboration that goes on as well. Okay, so action item here is selecting optimal first-line treatment for advanced kidney cancer in view of risk stratification, all those disease characteristics, and the plethora of patient and provider preferences. All right, so now we're going to talk about treatment options for patients who have progression of disease after one or more previous lines of therapy. And I think we're going to have a case study now for Taryn. This is Doreen, our 55-year-old female with metastatic renal cell carcinoma, and she presented with intermediate-risk clear cell RCC with metastasis to the lung and liver at the time of diagnosis. She underwent right radical cytoreductive nephrectomy with adrenalectomy, cholecystectomy, and partial hepatectomy. She began therapy with a VEGF-TKI plus ICI combination, and her first scan at three months on the VEGF-TKI plus ICI combo showed progression in lung and local recurrence in the nephrectomy bed. So this is why I say that that this is a blessing and a curse, because truly, we're still really learning how to sequence all of these agents. So if you go and you look at, I mean, I love a timeline in another presentation that that I give to to nursing students. I have this like timeline of how all these things have come into play and it gets really bunched up in the past few years. So there's there's, you know, research going on as to how do we sequence these drugs depending on in, in first line, it, it's it's a little bit clearer. But in second line and beyond, it depends on what people have already had. How do they tolerate their first line treatment? What remaining toxicities do they have from their first line treatment? And all of the other things that that go along with with taking cancer medications. So for second line therapy and beyond, so sequencing tyrosine kinase inhibitors. So folks who have not had immunotherapy, the general recommendations are for cabozantinib, which is an oral tyrosine kinase inhibitor, or lenvatinib plus everlimus. So that is tyrosine kinase inhibitor plus mTOR inhibitor combination. And then 
sequencing VEGFTKs prior to IO therapy, we'll touch on here in a few slides. So this is again another slide that highlights a lot of data from the clinical trials. So one from the Meteor trial, which is cabozantinib versus Everlimus and for second line therapy in IO naive patients, and then the phase two lenvatinib Everlimus versus lenvatinib versus Everlimus. There's a lot going on in that trial. So for the Meteor study. I look, if you look down at kind of that objective response rate line there is one that I always like to point out 17% versus 3% and then 43% versus 27% versus 6%. So as you can see with the, the, the lymvatinib-everlimus combination, the combo had a better response than each individual drug alone. So with cabozantinib, data from previous trials shows a positive response in patients who have bone metastases. So this is one drug that we um, that we consider for patients who have bone metastases because we know that it that it works well because there's data that shows that there's lots of dose reductions that happen with cabozantinib and mainly because of things like diarrhea. So good education up front with any of these drugs, whether it's a combination or monotherapy, is to set people up to kind of in, from the start to say, hey, there is a high likelihood based on what we know about toxicities from these drugs that we are going to either have to dose reduce or take a little drug holiday or a combination of all of those things in order to balance that um, fine line. We're always walking with, with patients with cancer between keeping people safe and effectively treating their cancer. I think hearing that up front before we actually get to the point where we're talking about dose reduction can help ease off some of that worry and anxiety that can come along with me walking in the room saying, hey, we got a dose reduced because I think what people hear is, but it's, that's not going to work as well to treat my cancer. So we have to be kind of mindful of some of those things with upfront patient education. One thing I do like to point out in the, the, the Lynn Everlimus trial is that 30% of patients discontinued altogether because of toxicity. So again, when we're Combining medications that have two different mechanisms of action, we always increase risk for toxicity. Um, so sequencing, if people have had prior immunotherapy. So we've got several options here. So lymphatinib, everlimus, tivosinib, which is relatively new. And, and quite frankly, I've only prescribed once, I think, at this juncture. Lymvatinib and pembrolizumab, if the patient hasn't seen pembrolizumab before, CAVO. So again, a nice summary slide of second-line VEGF TKIs in metastatic renal cell carcinoma for patients who have had prior immunotherapy. In the, the phase two trial, um, the first one on the list here of, this one was looking at specifically different doses of lymvatinib. So 14 milligrams in combination with Everlimus versus 18 milligrams. Most of the patients in this trial were intermediate or poor risk. Non-inferiority could not be claimed in this study. Um, and the efficacy of the larger dose wasn't the same. So I have to dose reduce lymvatinib not infrequently. When it's given in combination with pembrolizumab, it's 20 milligrams, which is a pretty hefty dose. So again, just kind of setting people up in advance that these drugs do have toxicities. We start people off on the recommended doses based on the data that we have from clinical trials, but that doesn't mean that it's a one-size-fits-all and we have to dose-reduce all the time. So just offering that upfront reassurance. The TiVo trial I'll point out was tivosinib versus serafinib, which 
seropinib, I don't think is a drug anyone on the planet is using for kidney cancer anymore, but here we are with that. So in this trial, patients had, had to have had two to three prior lines of treatment. The dosing is a little weird for this one. It's 1.34 milligrams for 21 days and then off for seven and kind of on a cycle like that. Um, the median progression fee survival in, in this trial was five, about five and a half months for folks getting TiVo and almost four months for patients getting serapidum. Some highlights from a couple of those trials. And then beyond, you know, once we kind of get down the line here, what, what are some other things that we could potentially try? And I will take this, this opportunity to always throw in my reminder that in the context of treating people who have metastatic renal cell carcinoma, which is largely incurable, it's important for patients to, to have a say in all this. And for us as their healthcare teammates to remind them that they don't have to exhaust every single treatment option in order for them to say that they don't want to do this anymore, right? Like, I think a lot of times our patients will continue on with treatment because they feel some pressure from their family or pressure from their friends or feel like they have to, to do it for us when in fact, at the end of the day, it's, it's their life. So when we're treating people palliatively for incurable cancer, it's important to occasionally have these, these talks about reminding folks that um, palliative care alone without cancer-directed therapy is, is always the choice on the table as well. So belzutifan is, is a new drug. So it's a small molecule HIF2A inhibitor that has some anti-tumor effect in clear cell renal cell carcinoma. It's currently FDA approved for kidney cancer tumors related to VHL disease. So kidney cancer tumors, also hemangioblastomas in the brain and spine and pancreatic benign pancreatic tumors that are associated with VHL. So in the phase one study here, there was an objective response rate of 25%. The things we really have to look out for, so I have six or seven VHL patients currently on drugs, so not patients who just have kidney cancer, are anemia and hypoxia. So they need to be coming in at least monthly for CBC toxicity check and for oxygen saturations to ensure that they are not having any issues with hypoxia. So considerations for treatment after progression. So what did, what did they get before? How did they tolerate it? What lingering side effects do they have? What are their current comorbidities or what comorbidities to recreate for them by giving them cancer-directed therapy? What's the strength of evidence behind all of these trials? Are they you know, phase three? Are they phase two? And what's the data? And then, of course, patient-provider preference as well. So we have an entire talk about management of treatment-related adverse events for patients with real self-respondition. And, and we should one day. Maybe I'll, I'll put that on my list of things to do. But I think this is really important for, for folks because even if those of you who don't treat patients who have renal cell carcinoma, these immunotherapies are being treated for so many cancers. So you're at some point going to run up against these medications if you haven't already. So what we know about these immunotherapy-related toxicities, they're very different than chemotherapy toxicities, right? So chemotherapy, cytotoxic chemotherapy toxicities are, are predictable, and most people get them, and we know how to treat them well. A little sidebar to say that cytotoxic chemotherapy does not work for metastatic kidney cancer, which is why you're not hearing me talk about that. 
adverse events that are associated with tyrosine kinase inhibitors, I think we we know how to manage those well because those those medications have been around for a while. So things like um, fatigue, hypertension, I feel like I've become a cardiologist with everyone's hypertension and foot syndrome, diarrhea, thyroid dysfunction, et cetera. And with the mTOR inhibitors, things like rashes, hyperlipidemia, and stomatitis. But the ICIs are different because they can affect every organ system. So the major driver of these adverse events with immunotherapies is cytokines. So activated T-cells flood these molecules into the system, and then self-reactive T-cells may proliferate and react with normal tissue as the checkpoint blockage disrupts immune homeostasis. So things can go absolutely bananas. We can send the immune system into, into overdrive. And this here is just a small list of the things that could potentially happen. And I'm sure those of you who um, manage patients on these medications have seen many of these side effects. So as you can see here, the, the timing of onset can be four weeks into treatment and beyond. There's emerging data that show that patients who were treated with a checkpoint inhibitor a, a couple of years ago and suddenly have this, this weird immune-mediated thing pop up. We, we don't exactly know why and who that's going to happen to, but just always being mindful that, that these medications just act very differently than anything, at least from my side of the street in treating G-oncology that we've seen before. So fatal adverse events from immunotherapy are rare, thankfully. But when they happen, they are absolutely devastating. And, you know, I can think of, you know, two or three patients off the top of my head who unfortunately had a fatal um, adverse event from, from an, a checkpoint inhibitor or combination therapy. And it's just absolutely devastating. So patient education is key here. And I'm going to, I harp on this a lot. But anything that is different, we need to know about, even if they feel like it has absolutely nothing to do with anything. But, you know, even just like an increase in fatigue, we need to make sure that there's not some sort of crazy adrenal crisis going on, right? So um, just good patient and caregiver education is, is actually really important in this context. So in this particular report, it showed that colitis was the most reported IRAE and myocarditis was the most was the most fatal. So how do we manage these things when they happen? Well, theroids. And everyone asks me if they're going to get, you know, big and strong. And the answer is always no, you're probably gonna get a little pudgy and angry, is how we we, we tell them they're gonna act. But but why? So steroids um, for people who have grade two or higher, depending on the severity will suppress the immune system, right? So they're nonspecific anti-inflammatory. So they basically reverse what we're, that hyperdrive that the immune system goes into. And then the, the other agents listed here are essentially add-ons in case high-dose steroids are not enough. So we use high-dose um, for folks who have kind of grade two plus um, and always remembering to do a four to six-week taper of high-dose steroids to avoid adrenal insufficiency. And also we can see a rebound effect of the particular toxicity if we take people off their steroids too soon. These biologic agents can be used for several different patients for several different 
side effects, excuse me, but so, for example, for people who have colitis that's refractory to steroids, we usually almost always continue the steroids and add things to them. So things like infliximab or venalizumab, we use those pretty routinely in patients who get these more severe side effects. These are medications that are used to, to treat other immuno, immuno-related diseases. So things like rheumatoid arthritis and Crohn's disease are, are kind of typically what their primary indications are for. I'm sure, you, I'm sure all of you have seen all the rashes. I'm, I'm so thankful for dermatologists because for whatever reason, I find it so difficult sometimes to describe what a rash looks like. And apparently in my note, red and ugly is not good enough, but I really do try. But there's so many different types of rashes, but particularly with these immunotherapies and if we're using them in combination with other like tyrosine or an mTOR inhibitor, for example, or a tyrosine kinase inhibitor that can cause other types of rashes, we can see these like weird inflammatory dermatitis things that happen. So the the median onset of skin toxicities is usually like one of the, the ones we would see earlier. So like in the four week range, we always want to get lab work to make sure there's it's not something else. So um, you know, worst case scenario would be something incredibly serious like a Stevens Johnson's, but that's a, associated with things with flu-like symptoms. So checking a CBC to make sure white blood cells aren't crazy and things like that. This can typically be managed conservatively when it's a grade one. And sometimes when it's a grade two, we can just continue their ICI, use topical corticosteroids depending on the severity. But when it starts to get like a grade two and a half-ish is what I call it, is when I'll typically do like a, a lower dose of a steroid. Certainly if it's grade three, which is defined as greater than 30% of the body surface area, we're holding drug, we're consulting our dermatology folks for skin biopsies and things like that. One of the benefits of the electronic medical record system, in my opinion, is that we can take pictures of stuff and like chart progression um, improvement, hopefully over time. So consulting our colleagues who are experts in managing these things is hugely important for folks who are on these medications. So treatment goals are to make sure that we are controlling inflammation earlier and effectively and taking a really good history. So is it, when did it start? How much of the body is it covering? Um, what are the characteristics? Is it flat? Is it raised? Is it dry? Is it, is it draining something? Is it puritic? Is it not? Minimizing recurrence minimizing the immunosuppressant exposure and its complications, and then weighing benefits of continuing immunotherapy for their cancer treatment, depending on the severity. These are general guidelines for management of immune-related adverse events, that's IRAEs. So it largely depends on grades. So for a lot of asymptomatic grade one, we can use best supportive care, continue their therapy. When things start to creep into grade two is when we start to say, hey, do we need to do we need to hold? Do we need to get our our expert colleagues involved? Do we need to start some systemic steroids, et cetera? And then when if if things progress to a grade three or four, then clearly that's a more urgent situation. I think I, I mentioned for for steroid refractory AEs, considering adding things like infliximab, especially for diarrhea or venalizumab. 
the fecal transplant is an investigational approach. I don't know if any of you have any experience with that, but thankfully I've not had any patients have a have such a severe colitis that that was even something that we had needed to consider yet. So here's a case. This is Robert, a 58-year-old with advanced RCC receiving cabonevo. He reports grade two LFT elevation after three cycles of therapy with nevo cabozatinib. His ALT is 66 and his ALT is 160. He's asymptomatic and otherwise tolerating therapy without other AEs. So yeah, one of the things I've kind of mentioned along the way are the, this concept of overlapping toxicities when people are taking combination regimens for their kidney cancer. A lot of times these drugs can have the same side effects. So one kind of classic example is hepatitis. So tyrosine kinase inhibitors and immune checkpoint inhibitors can cause hepatitis at roughly the same time point. So what do we do? It's a little bit of a crapshoot. So depending on what they're on, like the easiest thing typically is to stop their, their tyrosine kinase inhibitor. The half, the half life of exitinib is really, really short. For example, so if exitinib is the one that's that's the that's causing it, then then the LFTs will go back down rather quickly. However, if it's if it's unclear, the best course of action is to stop stop hold both agents and just recheck. So these are just management algorithms. I won't read this to you, but this just kind of goes into if there's overlapping toxicities, what do we do with which drug depending on the severity of the toxicity? And it can be it can be tricky. It's, it's more of an art than a science. So this just goes through what will we do with hepatitis. People on with people who are on two agents who with both agents can cause this. So depending on the grade, it and depending on the grade and depending on the drug. So for Robert, we would hold both. So he kind of falls into this middle category here of AEs of unknown etiology. We don't know. So holding both agents. And then management of hepatitis, depending on the grade, always getting our GI colleagues involved if we feel like we need their expertise. And then looks like we're going to wrap up the case study here. Here's our final part aspect of Robert's case. Both agents were held and LFTs were rechecked a week later. ALT improved to 45, down from 66. Then AST improved to 116, down from 160. He resumed therapy the following week with one dose reduction of CABO to 20 milligrams daily. And nivolumab dosing remained the same. Zero LFTs remain grade one and asymptomatic. Nice. Thank you. So this is just a handy tool. I think you can take a QR screenshot of this from your computer. So a nice handy tool that goes through the NCCN clinical practice guidelines and oncology for managing immunorelated therapy toxicity. It's so nice to have like a on your phone, in your pocket, quick and easy reference guide. If you can't remember all the things you have to do based on grade, it's nearly impossible to remember. And incorporating your pharmacy colleagues in here too. We have a clinical pharmacist who's embedded in our clinic who is super helpful with helping to manage these AEs. But this is a nice tool that's out there for those of you who are interested. So what? just kind of a, a take home about importance of education here. So they're unique to immunotherapy driven by that immune response. The majority of people are not going to have severe immune-related adverse events. They have a very variable profile and they can affect any organ. We know that they can also overlap with similar tyrosine kinase adverse events. So we have to do dose holding, dose reduction, sometimes just kind of, like I said, more of an art than a science in determining how we treat this. 
and educating patients at every single touch point you have with them to ensure that they understand to please report anything that's out of their norm because it could be the onset of something unusual. All right, so our action plan, speaking with eligible patients about potential risk and benefits of adjuvant treatment with Pembro, selecting our optimal first-line treatment for advanced kidney cancer, using risk stratification, disease characteristics, and patient preferences, strategizing post-progression treatment sequencing, considering prior treatment history, evidence, side effect profile, comorbidities, preference, and other social determinants, Um, controlling immune-related adverse events with steroids, other medications, and best supportive care, and then optimizing communication with patients around potential for adverse events and what to do in case of new, new issues with there's a list here, but I stay with anything. I've seen patients who are on hemodialysis because of their kidney cancer surgery. Patients don't feel well necessarily. How do you control their hypertension and manage that while they're getting chemo or immunotherapy plus hemodialysis? And I'm Mary, I wonder if you've had a patient with this scenario. I do have a handful of patients on hemodialysis for a variety of reasons some from their kidney cancer or because of their kidney cancer. Quite frankly, at when patients are that complicated or complex, have uncontrolled hypertension, sounds like kind of a, a poor performance status, having to balance things like diet in relation to their renal function. I bring in my colleagues. I bring in my pharmacy colleagues if the hypertension is very poorly controlled, I bring in cardiology and I'll get our oncology dietitians involved as well. I think it's important to know as a provider what my limitations are. And I think the best thing that I can do to serve my patients is to make sure all of the, the people who could potentially help with this relative, rather complicated scenario get on board if you have access to, to those folks. Thanks for the question. That's, that's tough. We have one more question from Lindsay, and I think probably other people also had the same question. How do you decide if you can restart ICI therapy after holding it for immune-related? Yeah. So that's based on if the if the AE goes away. So if it goes back typically to a grade one or completely resolve resolves and they're having and the drug is controlling their cancer. In other words, their scans are still stable because if they're off for a period of time, some, because of an AE that we're treating, sometimes we feel like we need to restage them in order to ensure they're not having like significant disease progression off drug. But if grade one or completely resolved, then we can restart or, or what's the word I'm looking for? Rechallenge patients with the same drug if they feel comfortable with that. So yeah, that's definitely something that we do. I want to thank Mary Dunn, our speaker. Mary, you've done a fantastic job today and UNC is lucky to have you. Thank you so much for sharing your knowledge with us on Renal Cell Carcinoma. Great to have you. You have been listening to CME on ReachMD. This activity is provided by Partners for Advancing Clinical Education, PACE, and supported by an educational grant from Merck Sharp and Dome, LLC, and CGEN. To receive your free CME credit or to download this activity, go to reachmd.com slash CME. Thank you for listening.